This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to the latest edition of the AJ Bell Money and Markets podcast. Summer's here, parts of the UK are enjoying fantastic sunshine, and a lot of people are looking forward to having a break from work to recharge their batteries. Now, despite all this good news, the backdrop for consumers and businesses continues to be tough. And we've got some important updates on these topics for savers investors on this week's podcast. And joining me is Laura Suter. Hi there. So yeah, while the cost of living crisis continues to rage on, Dan actually has some good news, which might signal that inflation is close to its peak in the current cycle. Unfortunately, it could take some time to feed through into the system, which means inflation pains will still be with us for a little bit longer. Now, if you thought that energy bills had jumped up a lot, brace yourself for October. Some experts now believe the next rise could be much worse than previously expected. So Laura will talk through the details later in the podcast. She's also going to delve into the latest data that shows how we're shopping. And this week's special guest is Duncan McKinnis from Ruffer Asset Management, who explains how his investment trust has bucked the negative market trend by actually making its shareholders money this year. Duncan will also explain why he believes the bear market is not over yet. Now, we'll also be talking about the best places to park your cash and all the deals around on the market at the moment. But first up, let's look at what's been happening in the world of stocks and shares over the past week. Dan, give us an update. Well, the big thing for me is there's loads going on in the natural resources sector. So in terms of takeover activity, um, so the North Sea gas company, Serica, had a takeover bid from Kistos. Uh, and, and this is quite interesting because effectively Serica says, no, we don't want your takeover, but can we buy you? And so, and then they, and Kistos <laughs> says, no, we want to buy you. And so they're going roundabout and roundabouts and it's... Um, so far, it's quite interesting, but you know there is there is a sort of merit in parking these two businesses together because it, it would create this much bigger player in North Sea gas, and, that, and of course this is just coming at the time when governments are looking for alternative sources of gas um, than, than taking it from Russia, which many places did before. Um, so if you have a bigger player, you know um, bigger scale assets, it'd be quite interesting to see sort of what demand that they would be in. And on the flip side, in the resources sector, we've got the, the gold mining company, Petropavlovsk, said it's going to enter into administration. So this business was once on the verge of joining the FTSE 100. It's, uh, it used to have um, some iron ore assets, which it spun off. But principally, this is a gold miner based in Russia. So if you go back before the Ukraine war, the business got into lots of problems with debts. It refinanced, um, and then there was endless boardroom sagas, investors trying to sort of push people out. Um, and now, because of the, the the war, it's found that because of sanctions, it's had trouble selling its gold. It couldn't pay its repay its debts. Um, of course, now it just looks like the end of the road for the business. So I think what will happen is that you probably see. Um, you know, the company goes into administration. Another Russian company will will sort of buy the assets. Unfortunately, it does look like shareholders are likely to get nothing. Um, you know, it's it's a bit of a shame, really. This is for for listeners who might not sort of know that the mining space it used to be called Peter Hambro Mining, named after the um, the one of the co-founders. You know, he was pushed out, and um, the other co-founder Pavel 
Maslovsky is currently in Russian prison on fraud charges. And, and you know, everything about this business is, is pure drama. Um, now, it's, it's awful that shareholders look like they're going to lose all the money. But, you know, this is quite a tale of, uh, you know, a resources business um, and just goes to highlight the, the risks involved in investing in, in mining shares. You know, very unpredictable about what's sort of going on. Uh, do you know, are you familiar with it, Laura, at all? No, I'm not, but it feels like it could be turned into like a Netflix drama based on what you've just said there. Oh, there there's, there's, so, you know, I've been writing about the mining sector on and off for, you know, for, for quite some time. There are lots of companies that are or used to be on the stock market that would make for absolutely fascinating films, TV dramas about what goes on in <laughs> behind <laughs> or closed doors. But I mean, on, on the sort of bigger, bigger scale of things, the subject of miners is really important if you're looking at the, the markets this week. Now, because it's really interesting to note that all the share price gains that you saw from the big mining companies at the start of the year have now been wiped out even to the extent of something like Anglo-American was doing incredibly well at the start of the year, now trading 13% lower versus the start of January. BHP is down about 5%, Rio Tinto down a little bit less. And it's only Glencore that's still ahead. Um, that's partially helped because it's got a commodities trading arm. But what's really important is since June, we've started to see commodity prices come down. So copper and oil both trading lower. Now, this is really important because... It, this is all about input costs for businesses. So if commodities are now becoming cheaper, some of those cost pressures on businesses could start to ease. Now, it'll take some time to feed through into the system, but it does suggest we are starting to see the first signs of almost cracks in this inflation story. So like I say, it, it, it's not like we're going to suddenly have a big drop at, um, in, in sort of the cost of living anytime soon, but you can certainly see the cracks are there. And you know, look at things like uh, lower shipping rates. Um, lots of companies are sitting on um, extra stock uh, they don't need. So I, I think it, you know, inflation has been on, 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 on everyone's minds. I don't want to sort of be, you know, make this big announcement, but to me, it feels like we are approaching a turning point for it. So um, definitely one thing to watch. It's also, there's a reason why the FTSE 100 has actually lost momentum. So many of its sort of members are, are in the resources space. So it, it really isn't a coincidence that the FTSE 100 has gone nowhere since June, exactly in line with sort of this, this sort of fall retreat in, in commodity prices. And so then, aside from that, what about some of the other industry sectors? Were there any big announcements or results in the past week? Well, yeah. So the thing to look for is actually what's going to be happening in the coming week. So we've got the the second quarter earnings season in the US is kicking off with the banks. Um, and so, but to me, the ones that you want to really be watching are are. Uh, coming up in in the coming days, so Netflix reports on the nineteenth of July. So they, those shares have been hammered uh, since November. So I think what we we found here is that during sort of the lockdowns, everyone was at home watching stuff. Since then, we've all been trying to get out and about again. And so subscriber growth figures have been quite challenging for for Netflix. And even though it's released um, some really sort of popular titles, including sort of the latest parts of Stranger Things recently. I would get the impression that it's going to come out with some pretty miserable subscriber numbers when it updates uh, next week. 
So this is sort of a reflection about consumers are looking to scale back on their spending. And you know, it's really easy to cut a subscription, um, something like streaming. Electric car maker Tesla reports on the 20th of July. And of course, here, we, it's already sort of told us about production figures have been slightly disappointing. But really, we want to know about the future of this business. And so it's quite interesting now that um, Elon Musk has sort of pulled out of buying Twitter. Um, there's been a bit of pressure on Tesla shares because everyone was looking at how he he sold some to help uh, part fund the the Twitter acquisition, uh, and people were wondering, well, would it be selling more? So you know, it's quite interesting to see a reversal of that. But um, and I guess the other thing to look for is is uh, results coming out from credit card provider American Express on the 22nd of July. This will give a sort of a barometer of consumer strength and uh, hopefully give some insights into how the U.S. consumer has been spending. Because what we're looking for are signs of um, whether spending is healthy or whether we, again, we're seeing signs of a pullback in terms of how people are sort of um, either you know, spending the money or keeping it back because they've got such bigger household bills to settle. Yeah, and on the topic of trying to kind of get some insight into consumer spending, we've already seen some signs in the UK that people are cutting back, a bit like you mentioned there, down with people cutting Netflix subscriptions or um, cutting back on their food bills. Also, some of the big sofa companies say demand has weakened. And Weatherspoons has been talking about a big slump in people buying pints in its pubs because they're favouring drinking at home. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I was saying a big reason behind sort of this shift in sort of consumer behaviour is because of these energy bills coming up. Um, you know, people are now having, you know, getting emails from their energy providers saying, like, I'm sorry, your direct debit is just not covering what we need it to cover. We'd have to put those up by for some people by considerable amount. But actually, there could be worse to come. So, Laura, what are you sort of hearing at the moment about this area? Yeah, so there are various estimates that come out at different points in time of what the energy price cap is going to be. But there's a company called Cornwall Insight, who I think most people would never have heard of before this current energy price crisis. But they've um, continually come out with different estimates, updating it based on what wholesale prices are doing. Um, and they've been pretty accurate in the past. So they've now come out with an updated estimate of what the October price cap will be. Um, and they're saying that they now expect that to hit £3,244 a year for the average household bill. And then on top of that, they're expecting that in January, which is when the next price cap will get announced, because we're moving to a every three months policy rather than every six months. Um, they're saying that in January, that average household bill will go up to £3,363, so basically just shy of £3,400. Um, we've got about a month left until the October price cap is announced. Um, due to the weird way that this is all done, the price cap is announced in August, but then the prices actually go up in October um, in order to give consumers and energy companies time to kind of process that. So I think the overall big picture is that we're going to see another very chunky increase in energy bills this winter. Um, to put those figures into some frame of reference, at the moment, the average household bill is £2,000 on the price cap. Um, and obviously, that's the average. Lots of homes will be paying far more. So either if you've got lots of people living in your home, um, you have high energy usage, you have a particularly energy inefficient home, um, that's really going to hurt you in winter. And so 
while we talk about these kind of average figures and they are eye-watering, that being the cost that you just have to pay to keep your heating and lights on, actually lots of people will be facing much higher bills. And those are also the figures for someone on a direct debit. If you're on a prepayment meter, then your price cap is set at a higher rate, so your costs will be slightly higher than that. And I thought it would be interesting to look at. So that increase that we're going to see between now and January, if these figures are right, um, put it into some kind of real frame of reference. So someone who's earning £25,000 at the moment would need to get a more than £2,000 pay rise just to be able to pay for those that increase in energy bills after tax. Um, and so when we talk about this increase, it's an increase of X amount. So this is kind of more than £1,000, £1,400. But actually, for someone earning money, they need to see a much bigger increase in their wages so that after tax, they've got that amount of money spared. Blimey. I mean, it's it's no wonder that we're looking at people's spending habits changing when they've got to shell out all this extra money. So, I mean, it does seem like yesterday when we were talking about people going crazy buying goods online because they were bored at home during the pandemic. And I imagine that sort of spending sort of patterns now are completely different to, you know, two years ago. What, have you seen any sort of figures about you know, comparing the two sort of periods, Laura? Yeah, so some some data came out this week from um, the Office for National Statistics, um, which I thought was really interesting. So obviously, as you mentioned, everyone's online spending peaked in the pandemic because that was only the only place you could spend money really lots of shops were closed in the in the kind of depths of the lockdown um and so everyone went crazy buying things online to feed their hobbies or because they were bored exactly like you say or because they also had spare cash because they weren't paying to commute to go to work or for holidays um but what we're seeing now is a shift in that and i think one thing that i think is interesting is that we're actually seeing um a decent shift towards people going back to actual shops. So I think everyone thought that this pandemic online spending boom would mean that everyone would permanently change their spending habits and they would always buy things online. And I think actually, if I think about myself, I think that probably is quite true. I would have gone to shops way more before the pandemic, but now I've kind of shifted entirely to online shopping. But but I'm not I'm not the average Brit. Um, And so lots of people now are returning to bricks and mortar shops, which is interesting because we've obviously heard a lot about the death of the high street and that being um, propelled by the pandemic and this shift to online shopping. But it seems like lots of people do actually quite like shopping in store rather than doing everything online. Um, Do you think it's to do with people just like to have a browse and... For some people, it's a leisure activity, isn't it? Getting out of the house, uh, you know, going around the shop, something to do. Yeah, and I think if the there are these kind of big, slightly out of town retail parks now, and if the queues coming out of those at the weekends are any indicator, people quite like that kind of destination shopping. Or I actually went to a shopping centre um, last weekend, and I couldn't believe how busy it was. You you wouldn't have believed that there was kind of a cost of living crisis going on, judging by the number of people that were out and about shopping. Um, so I think that was one interesting bit. And then the other bit probably ties in with all of the things that, that we would expect to see in the um, things like travel and eating out massively, spending on that massively boomed after the pandemic. But we're actually seeing that tail off now. And that ties in with the kind of 
Weatherspoon's factor that we were talking about earlier of um, people are now thinking, well, if costs are, are rising, I'd rather just buy a nice bottle of wine and drink it at home rather than go out and pay more to have it out in a restaurant or in a pub. Um, and we're also seeing what ONS does, um, kind of categorises delay spending. So spending that you can put off and that isn't essential, we're seeing a, a big rise in people delaying that. So that's things like clothes, household goods and car buying, all of the spend there is down and, and there's been a yeah big drop off in there. And those are probably quite expensive items that people can think, oh, well, I'll, I'll just wait it out another six months until I've got a bit more money. Yeah, I, I certainly know my shopping habits definitely changed compared to sort of 2020. I think at the time I was perhaps a bit guilty of spending too much money on eBay, but definitely thinking harder now about whether I really need something or not. And, you know, also making sure I've got a, a little bit of cash left in the bank, uh, particularly if you've got these sort of cost of living pressures. So I, I think that the, the fact that interest rates are going up has to be good for people who do have a bit of cash um, if they're looking to to get a small return on their on the sort of the, their savings but what's actually been happening with savings providers I, I get the impression that even though the bank of england's pushing up interest rates have the savings providers been as slow as possible in terms of lifting their deals um on, on sort of accounts in the uk um so it's kind of there's two uh, there's two answers to that question um the the first answer is yes the average bank um has been slow to increase interest rates or, or most of them to be honest haven't increased them at all so if you've got a savings account that you've had open for you know a year two years um that's probably fallen in rates because most of these are variable rates where you get a really good bonus deal to suck you in and then that rate drops um yeah if your money is loitering in that or in your current account for example you're not going to have seen any benefit of the interest rate rises but on the more positive news um there has been more competition in kind of the best buy tables for banks wanting to offer the best savings rate at either easy access or fixed rate. And so that means if you are willing to spend the time to shift your money, you can now get more for your cash savings than you could before the Bank of England um, increased interest rates. And um, to put that in context, also we're, we're expecting um, another in increase in interest rates from next month and so we would likely see a bit more competition in the savings accounts there um, but I thought it'd be useful to just highlight what you can get now so effectively if you've got savings sitting in a cash account and you're earning anything less than one and a half percent on it then you need to move your money and you can get more money um, more interest for your money so um, Virgin Money, Chase and Zopa are all offering one and a half percent on easy access accounts you obviously need to look at the details of those accounts to see if they're right for you um, but it's now much quicker to open accounts so lots of people think oh I've got to you know I've never banked with one of those banks I need to open a new account um, most of them have really streamlined the process and you can do it in kind of five, 10 minutes through an app or on a website um, and then shift your money across. Um, there's also been quite a lot of competition in fixed rate accounts. So you can now get 2.72% for a one year fixed rate account. Um, and then it increases up to 3.15% for a three year account. My caveat for those would be, and I'm sure people have heard me talk about this before, in, an in a rising interest rate environment, if you lock in a fixed rate account now and then the Bank of England 
for example, does increase interest rates by half a percent next month, you're not going to get that increase of a half percent on your savings rate. You've locked in that rate for a year, two years, three years, however long you fixed for. So you just need to be wary because we're in a market where it's widely expected that interest rates are going to go up. We don't know when and we don't know by how much. Um, but anyone who's fixing their rate just needs to be aware that they might miss out on that. And I think it means that more people are opting who are opting for fixed rates accounts are opting for shorter terms. So they may be saying, I'll fix for a year. That gets me a higher interest rate and takes care of the problem. And then in a year's time, when I come to um, put pick a new savings account for that, rates will be much higher. Um, it involves a little bit of like crystal ball predicting what interest rates are going to do, but it's just something you need to bear in mind before you fix. God, it feels like an eternity since I last went shopping around for a savings account. I oh, think... Dan, don't say these things to me. <laughs> well, it, I think it's because my bank offered some, and you're thinking, you know, for the last however it is, five years, you think, well, I'm just going to get barely anything. So what, what I think, you know, as you were sort of saying, shopping around for them, I used to think it's a hassle. It will take me ages to do the um, the application. So I'll just stick with whatever my bank's offering, which is bare, you know, next to nothing. Just, um, you know, but, but perhaps now is the time for me to to look around. I, you know, when you're talking about some of those deals for one-tier fixed deals, it's, you know, wow. You know, if you compare that to perhaps some of the dividends you can get on stocks, it's um, you know, cash is becoming a bit more interesting, isn't it? So it's been a long yeah. time since I said that. Yeah, no, and I think that is true. And I think um, I think you you are you're the voice of the nation, Dan, in what you're saying is that <laughs> lots of people have just thought, I'm not really gonna get much return. When when the most you could get was kind of half a percent on your savings, what what was the point in moving then? Now it is getting a bit more interesting. I think if I'm if I'm gonna add some doom into this positivity, um clearly you're not getting anywhere near what inflation is, but you can't get what inflation is. There's, there's no cash savings account out there that's going to offer you that. And so if you can try and get the most you can to try and bridge some of that gap um, between uh, what interest you're getting and, and what inflation is at the moment, then that's going to help you a bit in the future. Very good. So that's that's my evening sorted out then. <laughs> <laughs> what a fun evening. Yeah. Um, so now it's time for our big interview of the week. And it's one requested by a listener called Peter, um, which shows that we do get requests in and we do listen to them. So Ruffer Investment Company is one of the best known capital preservation funds on the market. And its job is to make sure that investors don't lose money. So Dan recently caught up with Duncan McKinney's from Ruffer to understand just how that capital preservation works and to get his views on the current market. It's a great interview. I I would say it's probably not the most cheerful outlook of markets, <laughs> but let's hear what Duncan had to say. So Duncan, global stocks and shares, if you measure them by the MSCI World Index, are down 9% year to date. But actually the Ruffer Investment Trust is up by 3.4%. How have you managed to achieve this pretty considerable outperformance. Well, what has been pretty remarkable is that nothing has performed well. US stocks have had their worst start to the year in, in half a century, and, and most conventional multi-asset portfolios are down sort of 10 to 18% for the year. And the old trope that in a crisis, all correlations go to one has been truer in the last six months than any time I can, I can remember. And 
something we've been banging on about for for a few years is that um, you won't be able to rely on conventional protections anymore. Traditional safe havens just haven't worked in the last couple of market risk events. So how have we preserved uh, capital and generated that small positive return that you mentioned in that environment? We have relied upon what we call our unconventional protective toolkit. And basically, that is a small bit of the portfolio, so less than 10%, where, where we use derivatives to get the sort of protections that we don't think investors can get elsewhere anymore. And that unconventional protective toolkit has generated all of our outperformance over the last couple of years. It saved our bacon in the COVID crash, and it's uh, saved our bacon so far uh, this year, touch wood. Because I, I think that's a it's a, a good point about derivatives is that I think when people look at capital preservation funds, they expect them to be sort of safe, reliable places. But they, they are full of, you know, they can be full of complicated investment products and obviously and some surprises because I know you, you briefly invested in Bitcoin. But do you think this sort of complexity is actually necessary to achieve what your, you know, your ultimate goal of trying to um, you know look after investors money and, and hopefully grow it a little bit as well on top? I think that that is a really insightful, if you don't mind me saying, an important question. We think the answer is yes, that complexity has become a necessary evil in what has become a much more complicated investment world. Now, there is a spectrum of complexity in the capital preservation or absolute return world. Without naming any specific names of competitors, there are some that use vanilla instruments, so stocks, bonds, currencies, gold, and nothing else. And there are others that are more like a black box, very complicated derivative strategies, and you don't really know what's going on inside it, even if they do sometimes perform pretty well. Now, at Ruffer, I think I think we sit somewhere in the middle. We used only vanilla instruments, those stocks, bonds, currencies, gold, for the first 17 years of the firm's existence. But about a decade ago, in 2012, we thought the landscape had changed sufficiently post the financial crisis Bond yields were very low and therefore would not offer attractive returns or a hedge if stock markets fell. And as we moved into a more inflationary world, stocks and bonds, uh, history shows, become much more correlated and therefore conventional portfolios will be far less diversified than investors would hope and think. And I think our recent experience is sort of bearing that out. And last year we were quite explicit that if you want an asset that will go up when stock markets go down, you probably needed some form of derivative. And we chose to use credit protections and equity market put options. We also have a chunk of the portfolio that is in inflation-linked bonds, which we think are a very attractive asset to hedge against financial repression, but they are vulnerable to rising interest rates. So if you want an asset that will go up when interest rates go up, as they most certainly are right now, a so-called negative duration asset, then again, you had to be in derivatives. And we used something called payer swaptions for that, which rise in value as bond yields and interest rates rise and allowed us to hedge out the interest rate risk in our bonds, which has been uh, extremely valuable this year. So there's an investment letter on your website from Jonathan Ruffer, which says your job is to put risk into portfolios. Now, I would have thought that many investors would expect your job is actually to remove risk, not insert it. So how do you actually balance trying to avoid losing money with also having 
trying to sort of make money for investors as well? Well, there, there are lots of investment letters on our website. So if anyone is interested, then that's definitely a place to go. I think what we what we do at Ruffer is quite different to what many investors or funds out there do. It's painting with a broad brush, I think most investors are return maximizing. They try to build a portfolio and then perhaps at the at the edge, they add some hedges um, around the outside uh, against any specific risks that they're worrying about. By contrast to being return maximizing, we are risk minimizing. We start with the risks. What are we worried about? What hedges do we need to have in place? What could go wrong in markets or in the world? And then once we are satisfied that we've protected the downside of the portfolio, we have something akin to a sort of risk budget left over to swing the bat at trying to generate returns uh, with what we think will happen. And I think what, what Jonathan was getting, Jonathan Ruffer was getting at is that when you're invested in capital markets, or even when you step outside the house every morning, you're always taking risk, whether whether you know it or not. You could be you could be hit by a bus. It's our job to try and make those decisions and those trade-offs about risk as explicit as possible, and to try and build a portfolio that can preserve capital and deliver consistent positive returns despite those risks. And I think to do that, avoiding the big losses, which is what capital preservation is all about, you know, that's at least half the battle. And if you can manage the downside, then the upside of being invested in capital markets over the long term tends to look after itself. And that's why we're so proud of, of our risk management uh, as a firm across the 27 years that we've been going. The max peak to trough loss that you could have experienced with us is less than 9%. And that, that compares to the, the FTSE, which has halved more than uh, has halved twice and fallen by 30% once in that, in that period. What's your thoughts about gold? I mean, are you sort of surprised that it's not done that well this year? I mean, it's, it's down slightly in the first half of 2022. So that's not quite living up to its reputation as being a sort of a good hedge against inflation. Yeah, um, I think it comes back to that point about uh, conventional protections not working. There's a, a famous quote about Mark Carney, the, the former Bank of England governor, where he was described as an unreliable boyfriend because he kept flip-flopping uh, on his uh, views on interest rate hikes. I, I think gold is the unreliable girlfriend because it never does quite what you expect it to do. If you think about 2021, so last year, it, it should have been perfect for gold. Massive money printing around the world, zero interest rates, failing trust in institutions, Inflation as a narrative coming straight back to the front pages, constant positive surprises in inflation, and it was down. Gold was down. And then you come into this year uh, where interest rates are rising, quantitative easing is becoming quantitative tightening, liquidity is being drained from markets. All of that should have been bad for gold, and yet it started the year quite well. Then we had a war and even more inflation, and gold went up a little bit. Um, but all of a sudden it's lower again. And yet again, it's sort of not done what you would want or expect it to do. So I think that has to be borne in mind. But we know that over the very long term, gold works as an inflation hedge. It performed extremely well through uh, the inflation of the 1970s. There's that sort of uh, comment that um, uh, you know, uh, afternoon tea at the Savoy 
has been the same when priced in gold for about 300 years, the same as the same in terms of a Savile Row suit. So it does preserve purchasing power on a long enough time horizon, but clearly in the short term, it can be knocked around and can be the unreliable girlfriend. Well, so what's your what's your view on bonds? I mean, that's even worse. I think lots of people have been sort of assumed that if, if stock markets are falling, that bonds would be sort of safe place, but they, they've done bad as well. I mean, are we at the point where actually bonds have fallen so much that they are quite attractive at these sort of depressed levels? Well, it's a sort of very painful irony that people have been herded into bonds if they don't want to take risk. You know, Low-risk portfolios have lots of bonds in them, and actually um, what that's done is guarantee them very low returns and, as we've found out this year, very significant risk. We sort of expected this pain in bonds, but to be honest, it's it's been more dramatic than, than we uh, we had imagined. They're on track for their worst year in several decades. Now, we, we don't own any conventional government or corporate bonds in our portfolio. And in fact, we continue to be in effect short corporate bonds. So betting that borrowing spreads will rise because yes, interest rates have gone up, but let's not forget they're coming off 5,000 year lows. That's Bank of England research that tells us that. And risk spreads were very low on top of that. So the, potentially things could get significantly worse uh, in terms of risk spreads, especially if we have a recession. However, if you look at sovereign bonds, so government bonds in the UK or, or the US, US inflation-linked bonds are now yielding 1% real. Um, so that's you know, 1% above inflation return over 10 years. That's not unattractive in the world that we imagine, but it's not very exciting either. And if you look at nominal conventional government bonds, the US 10-year bond is about 3%. Again, it's it's not particularly attractive, but it certainly is more attractive than it was when it was 1% a year ago. You know, That's the sort of free advice I, I give out. Um, but if we do have a recession, I think it's clear that they could act as a hedge from current prices. But you have to have pretty strong conviction that we are going into a recession. Because in the meantime, you would be owning this asset that's vulnerable to inflation and it's vulnerable to interest rates going up, both of which are clearly happening right now. Do you think we've seen the worst of the market declines? Because you know, commodity prices are now falling. That would imply inflation may have peaked. Um, I think everyone sort of assumes that a recession is coming. So you could argue that the market is actually running out of things to worry about. <laughs> there, there is always there is always something to worry about. Um, so we've we've definitely had some of the pain, but I, I think we are we are dependent to a, a very large degree on what central bankers do. And the image that I have in my head is of central bankers as a tightrope walker, and they are trying to walk the tightrope to the uh, the soft landing on the far side. So that's when they tame inflation, but they um, manage to avoid a recession. In reality, I suspect they will fall off the tightrope. And on one side, they tighten and raise interest rates too much and they cause a recession. And on the other side of the tightrope, they don't raise interest rates enough. And the inflationary spiral that we're um, currently or arguably in um, continues to, to gain momentum and get worse. Now, in terms of the worst of the market declines, I think it, investors under the age of 60, maybe even slightly older, have been conditioned to buy the dip. Central bank easing, uh, policy response has always been just around the corner, 
and market recoveries have been swift and pretty steep. But a look further back in history shows that the pattern that many bear markets take is a steep drop, like we've just had, but followed by a more prolonged grind lower over a number of years. And I think today, without the immediate policy stimulus response to falling markets, we could have a scenario like that. So let me just sort of run you quickly through the different strands to what why we think uh, the bear market is not over yet and stocks are not yet a buying opportunity. So the first would be the, the Federal Reserve and central banks around the world are continuing to tighten into an economic slowdown. Valuations have come back to something that looks around fair, but that assumes that earnings are still strong. Now, those earnings are vulnerable because they, they imply record high margins at a time of rising debt costs, rising labor and energy costs, and the supply chain disruptions that we've known about for the last couple of years. We haven't seen the signs of capitulation that we normally see at a bear market bottom. In fact, flows uh, have been very strongly positive into equities and credit throughout, throughout the year. That's not normally something you see at the bottom. Consumer and CEO confidence has fallen dramatically in the last six months, increasing the likelihood of demand reduction and recession. And I just think the old rules no longer apply. The, the cost of living crisis is now front page news. And the, there's this political imperative to bring down inflation, not to support asset prices, as in, as in recent market events. So we're in this sort of negative feedback loop where any rally in the stock market, I think, sows the seeds of its own demise because it allows central bankers to raise interest rates faster to try and tackle the main problem, which is inflation. And then lastly, we uh, are very focused on liquidity. We think liquidity is the driver of market prices at the margin, and the liquidity situation looks very likely to deteriorate in coming months. Quantitative tightening is going to be accelerating. It only started uh, a few weeks ago, and rising short-term interest rates also creates a legitimate alternative to being invested in the stock market. For the last 12 years, everyone's been investing in the stock market because they earn nothing in the bank. By the end of this year, you might be earning 3% in the bank, and that although below inflation, might be enough to, uh, to convince people to, to give up on risky assets. Well, Duncan, thank you ever so much. That's really fascinating stuff. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, uh, giving your sort of views about where we are and sort of the, the markets at the moment. Thanks for having me. That was a great interview. So big thanks to Peter, our listener, who suggested that we speak to Rafa. And if there's anyone else you'd like us to get on the show, that's everyone, not just Peter, but Peter's <laughs> willing to send in more requests, then get in touch by emailing podcast at ajbell.co.uk. Now, we've just got time for one more segment, and it's a nice and cheery one to end the show. So Laura's here to talk about beer. So I, I presume you're going to tell me that you've set up a microbrewery. Uh, no, I don't think anyone wants to drink beer that I've created, but <laughs> I have better news. So in light of cost of living crisis, I thought I'd do some small tidbits on cheap or free beer. Oh, yes. Yes, please. Yes, I knew you'd be excited for this. So um, what do you think the cheapest beer in London is at the moment? Um, I think... For four ninety five for a pint of bitter. <laughs> so you can get 
a pint of lager for less than £1.50 at a pub in London. It's really? pretty good, isn't it? Where um, is this pub? There's a Weatherspoons in Leytonstone, which is selling Green King IPA or Ruddle's Best for £1.49. So that's a good deal. I was actually pretty amazed. I didn't think you could get beer that cheap in London. Um, but for non-Londoners, don't worry, I've got stuff for you as well. Um, you can go into a Green King and get a free pint if you share a surname with the England women's football squad. Oh, yes, I did, I did see that. That's good. So obviously any of the players' surnames. Yes. Um, so... They've been smart. There isn't a Smith in there. So, um, but yeah, have a look at the the surnames of the England women's squad and you can go into Green King and get a free pint of beer. Very good. That's the news. We need to cheer us all up on these hot days, isn't it? Very good. Well, that's all from us this week. Don't miss next week's show where we'll be talking about property, pensions and a lot more. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Thanks a lot. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.